Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. Late August 2019 is the actual time period marking the 400th anniversary of the arrival of Africans in the English colony of Jamestown in 1619. So we have a rebroadcast of our interview with historian Gerald Horn about this international commemoration and opportunity to re-examine the world-altering impact of the enslavement of African people. The question of slavery is seen as a kind of pebble on the otherwise smooth face of the establishment of this alleged great country, the United States of America, with slavery seen as some sort of accident or temporary deviation, when in fact it was the driving locomotive. And August has many anniversaries, from Mike Brown being shot to death by police in Ferguson five years ago, to the many historical markers of what is known as Black August. We remember how the past informs the present. No justice, no peace. No racist police. No justice, no peace. No racist police. No justice, no peace. No racist police. These stories, voices, and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. The writer Toni Morrison joining the ancestors on August 5th, 2019, reminded me of covering Morrison's appearance in Queens, New York in the 1990s. She talked about the word remembering, not as an exercise in the mind's memory, but in reattaching lost parts of our emotional, spiritual, and physical selves, represented in our history, our community, bloodline, and genetic memory. Morrison's words are the inspiration for this broadcast on August 16th, 2019, as we near the actual date August 20th, marking 400 years since Africans arrived at the English colony of Jamestown. It's so clear that we have to raise up our own important historical markers. We have to remember their importance like Ferguson, Missouri, rising up five years ago. And that sparked a new phase of the movement for black lives after teenager Mike Brown was shot to death August 9th by Ferguson police and his body was left in the street uncovered for four hours. What began as a local cry for justice from Ferguson for Mike Brown turned into a national movement here in D.C. A coalition sprang up called D.C. Ferguson and here is on the grounds coverage from October 2014 featuring a rally by D.C. Ferguson and the parents of Mike Brown and Eric Garner visiting D.C. for help from the federal government. I'm here in Washington to ask for help in getting justice for my son in Missouri. Missouri has not showed us anything that we're looking for. I am here to try to make sure that this doesn't happen to anyone else's family. This is this is very terrible for us and, and for everyone else that has lost. And we, we are here to get justice. We need your help. For the way that we lost our children, I mean, our children wasn't, I mean, they might have made mistakes in their life. But at the time when they were being killed, they weren't doing, the sentence wasn't death. 
for selling cigarettes, it wasn't death. For the children walking in the street, the sentence wasn't death. So we're here also to ask for justice, and you, we need it now. The justice for Michael Brown, the racist cops. The justice for Michael Brown, the racist cops. Change our whole mentality, man. We gotta change our whole mentality. They want you to believe that we are weak, but we are strong. We gotta listen, listen, we didn't even have to do it. We the police shut down M Street just because we came, just because we showed up. That's the type of power we move in in the District of Columbia. When DC Ferguson shows up, the streets shut down. When DC Ferguson shows up, when we show up, the last voice you heard was activist Eugene Perrier part of the D.C. Ferguson movement that sprang up in D.C. in 2014 in response to and in solidarity with the Ferguson uprising. Ferguson, Missouri exploded after police officer Darren Wilson shot to death teenager Michael Brown and Michael Brown's body was left in the street uncovered for four hours. Such anniversaries keep coming. On August 9th, one year ago, a U.S.-made bomb sold to Saudi Arabia struck a school bus in Yemen, killing 44 people, most of them children. On Thursday, human rights activists gathered in the atrium of the Hart Senate office building on Capitol Hill to remember those killed and how the U.S. is complicit in the ongoing Saudi attack on Yemen, which is responsible for the world's worst humanitarian crisis and for tens of thousands dead and millions more who are starving. Aisha Salim with the organization STAND, or the student-led movement to end mass atrocities, spoke to those gathered. August 9 marked the one-year anniversary of the Saudi airstrike that killed dozens of Yemeni children in a school bus in Sana'a. For these children, life in Yemen had radically changed since the start of the war in 2015, but they try to live their lives as normally as possible by simply going to school. Their families sent them to school that morning, not knowing that they would never see their children again. And as we prepare to head back to school in the coming weeks, their journey to school is something that we can all relate to, and it should not have cost them their lives. And a year later, here we are in a climate where not much has changed for the Yemeni children who still struggle to attend school due to violence and a lack of resources. And today, as we stand in one of the most influential and powerful buildings in the world, in the U.S. and honestly the world, we must resolve ourselves to bring the stories of these children to our lawmakers who have the power to stop more children from dying in Yemen and around the world. Now, I will recite the names and ages of those who died in the airstrike on August 9, 2018. We will then hold a three-minute silence to honor the lives taken from them far too soon. Ali Salah Zaid Faya, 48-year-old school director. Yahya Hussein Yahya Al-Bishri, 42-year-old volunteer teacher. Mohammed Abdul Hafiz Abdullah Steen, 28-year-old volunteer teacher. Ali Hussein Hassan Al-Ajri, 27-year-old, volunteer teacher. Ali Zaid Ali Al-Hamran, 15. Hussein Muhammad Asan Al-Ajri, 15. Yusuf Hussein Hussein Tayyib, 
2015 Usama Zaid Ali Al Hamran 13 Yusuf Abdul Aziz Al Daudi 13 Walid Abdullah Ali Ali Al Kulani 13 Muhammad Said Ali Salman 13 Abdullah Hussein Faisal Hajj 12 Akab Muhammad Hassan Al Abadi 12 Abdul Malik Abdul Rahman Abdullah Al Dib 12 Ahmad Zad Hussein Tayyib 12 Muhammad Abdul Salam Abdullah Al Dehani 12 Muhammad Abdullah Yaya Valida 12 Yaya Muhammad Hussein Al Ajri 12 Abdullah Abdul Salam Abdullah Tarif 12 Yahya Mahdi Az Eldin Huria 12 Yunus Abdul Aziz Al Dadi 11 Muhammad Yaya Yaya Faya 11 Abdullah Abdullah Hussein Al Razi 11 Ahmed Abdul Hakim Al Ali Amr 11 Zakira Abdul Wahab Al Ali Faya 10 Ali Muhammad Hassan Dai 10 Turkey Muhammad Hassan Abadi 10 Yusuf Abdullah Saleh Al Hatafi 10 Hamid Muhammad Aida Hadi 10 Hassan Abdul Karim Ahmad Al Hadi 10 Amjad Abdul Rahman Abdullah Al Dib 10 Yusuf Saleh Abdullah Al Akili 10 and some of the youngest Ali Zaid Hussein Tayyib 9 Ali Abdul Rahim Ali Hashim 9 Yusuf Hassan Muhammad Al Dib 9 Muhammad Abdullah Muhammad Al Hakim 9. Muhammad Abdul Salam Hassan Huria. 9. And the youngest, Muhammad Yaya Muhammad Al Azi. 8. That was Aisha Salim, a student activist, speaking Thursday at a rally inside the Hart Senate office building, where she read the names of the 44 people, mainly children, who were killed when Saudi Arabia used a U.S. bomb to strike a Yemen school bus one year ago, August 9, 2018. Though Congress did pass legislation earlier this year ending U.S. sales of weapons to the Saudis, it was vetoed by President Trump. Mac Hamilton, executive director of the student group Stan, said that members were lobbying congressional offices this week to include in the upcoming defense authorization amendments that would limit U.S. cooperation with the Saudi attack on Yemen. In other international news, also related to children, on Thursday, a federal court dismissed a Trump administration appeal which argued that safe and sanitary conditions for detained immigrant children does not include providing basic hygiene necessities such as toothbrushes, soap, showers, and towels. The court's ruling comes just weeks after Justice Department Attorney Sarah Fabian stood before the Ninth Circuit judges and argued that the Trump administration should not be required to provide detained immigrant children with toothbrushes, toothpaste, soap, and other items. Also, Donald Trump created his own dubious August historical marker by encouraging a foreign country, Israel, to ban two members of Congress. 
After urging by Trump, Benjamin Netanyahu's government banned Representatives Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar from entering that country or the territories it illegally occupies. The two representatives had planned to begin their visit on Sunday. Netanyahu said that the two lawmakers are facing this unprecedented ban because of their support of the global boycott divestment sanctions movement, which is pressuring Israel because of its repeated violations of human rights of the Palestinian people and repeated violations of international law. After facing severe criticism because of the unprecedented ban, there were reports late Thursday that Israel would allow Representative Talib to visit her grandmother who lives in the West Bank. Omar said in a statement that Israel was implementing the same Muslim ban that Trump put in place in the United States. Meanwhile, the activist group Code Pink filed a complaint Thursday over what they called APEC's illegal propaganda trip to Israel for other members of Congress. In the statement, Coping said, quote, These Congress people are our public officials who are being taken by lobbyists to a foreign country for the purpose of increasing support for Israel, a country that already receives $3.8 billion a year of our tax dollars, end quote. In environmental and climate news, research by a Cornell University scientist warns that fracking in the U.S. and Canada in the past 10 years is the cause of a large rise in methane in the Earth's atmosphere. Professor Robert Howarth examined hydraulic fracturing or fracking over the past several decades, noting that between 2005 and 2015, Fracking went from producing 31 billion cubic meters of shale gas per year to producing 435 billion cubic meters, and nearly 90% of that fracking took place in the U.S., while about 10% was done in Canada. Also this week, the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection Commissioner Catherine McCabe met with Environmental Protection Agency Administrator Andrew Wheeler about lead contamination in the water in Newark, New Jersey, where officials have been handing out bottled water to city residents since Monday. The organization Food and Water Watch said that the lead contamination in Newark is another example of the need for a federal plan to overhaul the country's water infrastructure and to oversee water safety. And finally, in culture and media, employees of Google announced Wednesday that they are protesting the tech giant's expected proposal to work with President Donald Trump's war on immigrants through cloud computing contracts. A post on Medium.com announced their concerns over the contract. Quote, We demand that Google publicly commit not to support CPB, ICE, or ORR with any infrastructure funding or engineering resources, directly or indirectly, until they stop engaging in human rights abuses, end quote. And in D.C., a celebration of life was held August 10th for Ron Clark, co-founder of Rap Incorporated, a drug-free, nonprofit residential substance abuse treatment organization inside the packed sanctuary of Westminster Presbyterian Church in southwest D.C., Dr. Reed Tuxen, former Commissioner of Public Health for the District of Columbia, described the intense atmosphere that Clark worked in during the 1980s as D.C. was flooded with crack, the cheap, smokable form of cocaine. As a result of the criminal justice response to the growing tide of substance abuse, 
Our city surpassed all other cities in per capita drug arrests with Operation Clean Sweep and the Jump Out Squads arresting 800 to 900 people on a weekend, 30,000 all told, one-fourth of all the men in this city between 18 and 29 incarcerated on drug-related offenses. And that was at the time of minimum mandatory sentences ruining the lives of so many of our children. Ron Clark served as president and executive director of RAP Incorporated until his retirement in 2014. And those are our headlines and happenings. When we come back, Gerald Horn on 1619. Here in late August 2019 is the actual 400th anniversary of the arrival of Africans in the English colony of Jamestown. But is that date as important as we make it out to be? Stay with us. So, we must ask ourselves, what is the dictionary definition of terrorism? The systematic use of terror, especially as a means of coercion. But what is terror? According to the dictionary I hold in my hand, terror is violent or destructive acts such as bombing committed by groups in order to intimidate a population or government into granting their demands so what's a terrorist they're calling me a terrorist like they don't know who the terror is when they put it on me i tell them this i'm all about peace and love Like the ragheads and packies are worrying your dad But your dad's favourite food is curry and kebab It's funny but it's sad How they make your mummy hurry with her bags Rather read the sun and study all the facts Tell me, what's the bigger threat to human society? BAE systems or homemade IEDs Remote controlled drones Killing off human lives Or man with homemade bomb committing suicide I know you were terrified When you saw the towers fall It's all terror but some forms are more powerful It seems nuts How could there be such Agony when more Israelis die from peanut allergies It's like the definition didn't ever exist I guess it's all just dependent who your nemesis is Irrelevant how eloquent the rhetoric peddler is They're telling fibs now, tell us who the terrorist is They're calling me a terrorist Like they don't know who the terrorist When they put it on me I tell them this I'm all about peace and love They're calling me a terrorist Like they don't know who the terrorist Insulting my intelligence Oh how these people judge was democracy, Mossadegh was democracy, Allende was democracy, hypocrisy, it bothers me, call you terrorists if you don't want to be a colony, refuse to bow down to a policy of robberies, terrorism, my lyrics, when more Vietnam vets killed themselves after the war than died in it, this is very basic, one nation in the world has over a thousand military bases, they say it's religion, when clearly it isn't, it's not just Muslims that oppose your imperialism, it's Hugo Chavez, a Muslim, nah, 
I didn't think so, it's Castro a Muslim Nah, I didn't think so, it's like the definition didn't never exist I guess it's all just dependent who your nemesis is Irrelevant how eloquent the rhetoric peddler is They're telling fibs now, tell us who the terrorist is They're calling me a terrorist Like they don't know who the terrorist When they put it on me, I tell them this I'm all about peace and love But they're calling me a terrorist Like they don't know who the terrorist Insulting my intelligence Oh, how these people judge You think that I don't know But I know, I know, I know You think that we don't know But we know Was building seven terrorism Was now no thermite terrorism Diego Garcia was terrorism just the crunches with terrorism Phosphorus that burns hands, that is terrorism Ergon and Stern gang, that was terrorism What they did in Hiroshima was terrorism What they did in Fallujah was terrorism Mandela ANC, that was terrorism Jerry Adams IRA, that was terrorism Every Prince Black Water was terrorism Oklahoma McVeigh, that was terrorism Everyday USA, that is terrorism Everyday UK, that is terrorism This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. We are joining with people all over the nation and all over the world in marking 400 years since enslaved Africans landed at the English colony of Jamestown, Virginia in 1619. While this date is widely touted as the first presence of enslaved Africans in what became the United States, Professor Gerald Horn is joining us today to tell us the real story of why 1619, while significant and should be marked and discussed, is not necessarily what we say it is. As our listeners know, Gerald Horn is on the ground's regular contributor. He is the John Jay and Rebecca Morris Professor of African American History at the University of Houston, a prolific scholar. He has published more than three dozen books, many that we have discussed on this show, which have illuminated African American and American history, including the events of 1619 covered in his groundbreaking book, The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism. And he's joining me now with an exclusive sneak peek at his next book and research about the 1500s. Well, Gerald, these conversations about your research are very fascinating to me. And I know also to our listeners because of the feedback we get and the way they respond uh, to your books. So as you heard in my intro, 1619 is being marked this year in all kinds of commemorations as the first presence of enslaved Africans in what became the U.S. So tell us the real story of why this date may not be what we say it is. Well, as I am going to say in my book on the 1500s, in 1526, and what is now South Carolina, it was not called South Carolina then, the Spanish from their perch in Hispaniola, today's Haiti and Dominican Republic, had brought enslaved Africans to this territory, which we now call South Carolina. And the enslaved Africans there were working and building on behalf of 
the Spanish settlers before they decided to join with Native Americans in revolt, which they did in league with the indigenous population of that land, and they basically chased out the Spanish and dispersed within that territory now known as South Carolina. Do we know the Native people, what nation that was? It's probably Catawba, mm-hmm. but, um, or perhaps Cherokee, who, of course, occupied the southeast quadrant of North America, or it did at least at one time. But in any case, this effectively forestalled the establishment of a Spanish settlement in that territory, opening the door for London to establish its own settlement in the 1670s, which we now call South Carolina. Not only that, but even before 1525, 1526, the Spanish, as is well known, had established a beachhead in the territory we now call Florida. Uh, We're all familiar, I'm sure, with the story of the Spanish conquistador Ponce de Leon and how he was allegedly and purportedly in search of the Fountain of Youth and stumbled upon uh, Florida. Uh, That was about 1511. That is to say about 20 years after Columbus had crossed the ocean blue. And we also know that in 1565 that the Spanish settled uh, what is now considered to be the longest continuing European settlement in North America, speaking of St. Augustine, Florida. And we all know that there were enslaved Africans there as well. In fact, records in Florida suggest that the first African born on North American soil was probably born or perhaps born in Florida, decades before 1619. Now, like yourself, I'm not opposed to this marking of 1619. Any occasion for a mass conversation about slavery is to be welcome. But at the same time, it would be as if we were marking the origins in the United States, say, from 1876 as opposed to 1776, for example. We'd get a stunted viewpoint of the history of this country. And I think that that's what's happening in part with regard to this marking of 1619. In fact, I was on Jamaican radio just a few days ago, and the Jamaicans were telling me that Ghana, West Africa, is uh, trying to join in on the 1619 uh, celebration, or I should say anniversary, excuse me, commemoration, by encouraging tourism, you know, sort of return to your roots. Yes, I've seen a few um, very (laughs) high-priced circulars come my way. Um, this daughter of Africa cannot afford these commemorations. <laughs> <laughs> but the Jamaicans say, wait a minute. I mean, there were slave Africans at the behest of the Spanish in Jamaica well before 1619, and they have a point. And then we know even with regard to the English, and <laughs> as is apparent, we're sitting here speaking English, which means that those are the people who prevailed in triumph. I think we have a distorted viewpoint with regard to the English role in enslavement, uh, sometimes marking it from 1619, when in fact the latest research suggests that even before Columbus, you had English merchants in Andalusia in Spain who were collaborating with the Spanish in enslaving Africans, because we know that the Spanish and the Portuguese were enslaving Africans uh, well before 1492. And I think that that helps to uh, underscore 
why the roots of anti-black sentiment in this country are so deep and so profound because it stretches back more than half a millennium. And this also helps to underscore why there's this continuing demeaning and denigration of black people, which was necessary to our enslavement, which manifested itself most recently in the Commonwealth of Virginia with blackface being sported by the governor and his attorney general. So nearly a century before 1619, there was an African presence in the United States. And of course, we're not counting the research done by Ivan Van Cernema about Africans arriving in this hemisphere before Columbus, but we're specifically talking about the American experiment. So why do you think the Spanish narrative has been omitted? Well, it's, it's a kind of victor's history, <laughs> number one. Uh, we're all familiar with that. Uh, I'm speaking to you from the Pan-African Film Festival, and one of its major slogans is that until the lion is able to tell her story, then the hunter's story will prevail. And we know that there's a kind of Anglo-centrism with regard to the telling of history in North America. There's a kind of victor's history. I mean, look at the way history is taught in the United States today. The, the question of slavery is seen as a kind of pimple on the otherwise smooth face of the establishment of this alleged great country, the United States of America, with slavery seen as some sort of accident or temporary deviation, when in fact it was the driving locomotive of this so-called experiment in North America. And I think that this marking of 1619 in, in some ways reflects those traits and tendencies I've just enumerated. Well, on that note, we're going to take a little break here. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Stay with us.
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam, and I'm in conversation with On the Ground's geopolitical analyst, the professor and historian Gerald Horn, and we're talking about 1619, this year's national commemoration of 1619 and 400 years since the arrival of Africans in Jamestown, Virginia. And so, Gerald, one of the things that I think we, we discussed in terms of trying to prepare for today was how race and racism became the organizing principle for the English as opposed to the Catholicism of the Spanish. Tell us about how that changed the lives and fortunes of Africans living under the English versus the Spanish in those early uh, centuries. Well, looking back from 1540, if we had to make a prediction about who would prevail either as a, the major power of the late 1600s, or B, going into the 20th century, we would have been wise to put our money either on the Ottoman Turks, who were Muslims, who, as you know, uh, who had uh, basically uh, wielded a very devastating blow against Christian Europe in 1453, when the Ottoman Turks seized Constantinople, now Istanbul, which was a kind of existential crisis for the Western European Christians, and in fact led directly, according to one theory, to Columbus sailing west. That is to say that the Western Europeans found their road to the riches of Persia, now Iran, uh, India, and China blocked, and therefore they sent Columbus west to find India, among other nations, and he stumbled upon what is now we refer to, what we now refer to as Hispaniola, and uh, he thought he was an Indian, he calls the people Indians, which they're still called today. And then there are the Spanish, who had a, a kind of first mover's advantage. Uh, recall that they financed Christopher Columbus's voyage, and as we know, uh, there are still millions uh, who speak Spanish in, in this hemisphere. Uh, that is to say, Mexico is the largest uh, Spanish-speaking country on planet Earth. But what happens, as you know, in the 1530s is that Henry VIII, according to one way that story is told in London, wanted to get a divorce and the church was not having it and he broke away from the 
Catholic Church and then follow the road to a Protestant faith. And then this helps to set up this long-time, long-term religious conflict between Protestants and Catholics. Now, what's interesting is that, as I'm going to say in my book on uh, the 1500s, the Spanish took Catholicism quite seriously. Uh, There's no accident that the monarch in Madrid was called his Catholic majesty. And in fact, when Europeans who were suspected of not being Catholic landed at the docks in St. Augustine, uh, clerics were sent to interrogate them with regard to their religious beliefs. And if they were not Catholic, perhaps they'd be subjected to the Inquisition, such as the Jewish population was subjected to in Spain in 1492. That is to say, convert to Catholicism or die or be tortured. Or these so-called non-Catholics would be expelled. And so what this meant was that this created an opportunity for the Spanish to make overtures to the African population as I said in my book on Cuba, there's a much more substantial free Negro population, free African population in Cuba than on the North American mainland where London prevailed, in part because these Africans could convert to Catholicism and then get certain kinds of benefits. So there are basically three models that develop in the 1500s. One is the Ottoman Turks. They were enslaving everybody. They were enslaving Africans. From and sending them to the slave markets in Istanbul or Cairo, which they had seized in the 1500s. And they were enslaving Europeans. We all know that uh, even today in Albania and Bosnia in Eastern Europe, uh, there's still substantial Muslim populations. They were enslaving everybody. Then you had the Spanish who created a, a, a kind of escape hatch for black people by helping to build a free Negro population. In many cases, they were armed. And uh, as history has shown, uh, these armed Africans in St. Augustine, Florida, were tormenting English settlements uh, in the late 1600s and the first half of the 1700s, which caused London to try to exterminate that settlement. Uh, Fort Mose is what it was oftentimes called. And then you had the English, uh, who for various reasons, were more open to the Jewish population that was fleeing the Iberian Peninsula uh, and therefore were able to take advantage of the diaspora networks of the Jewish population. And they were more open to what might be called a whiteness project, a pan-European project, and focusing their enslavement on Africans. (laughs) That is to say, your ancestors and my ancestors. And as it turns out, that was the model that wound up prevailing, that prevailed London into the front ranks of nations, whereas in the 1500s, there was a minor power on the fringes of Europe for the first few decades of the 1600s. It was the same, a minor power on the fringes of Europe. But through this process of whiteness and white supremacy and degrading and demeaning black people and enslaving them on a mass basis, they were able to catapult themselves into the front ranks of nations and then pass the baton on to their revolting spawn, now known as the United States of America, post-1776. You are hearing the voice of Gerald Horn, our geopolitical analyst, but he's also a historian and author of more than three dozen books. And he's talking about uh, kind of kicking off our commemoration of 1619, the 400 years since enslaved uh, Africans were brought to Jamestown, Virginia. And... That book is The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, 
the roots of slavery, white supremacy, and capitalism in 17th century North America and the Caribbean, and also confronting black Jacobins, the U.S., the Haitian Revolution, and the origins of the Dominican Republic. Well, now, actually, when we spoke about the apocalypse of settler colonialism before, uh, Gerald, I'm still fascinated by the whole idea of how anti-monarchism, you know, being against the, the, the king or the, the monarchy in England was related to free trade and republicanism and the slave trade. And you've kind of started to touch on that, but I just think that it's, it's really worth repeating about the origins even of this term free trade, this hallowed term that is <laughs> discussed so much even now. Well, what helped to build the Americas, and more specifically, this country now known as the United States of America, was free trade in Africans. And this stems, if we can reel back, circle back to 1655, when Oliver Cromwell and his comrades are able to oust the Spanish from Jamaica and embraces the Jewish community fleeing from Brazil, where they had mastered the dark art of making sugar from the free labor of Africans, and that process is important to Jamaica, creating great wealth in terms of the sugar trade, because sugar was not only used to sweeten your tea and coffee, it was a miracle drug, according to some. It was a sign and marker of sophistication, according to some. And this sends wealth pouring into the coffers of London, which is then used to build uh, more ships, and a, a bigger navy, used to not only transport sugar to the markets of Europe, but also to snatch more enslaved Africans and bring them kicking and screaming across the Atlantic to work for free, and also to batter the Dutch, uh, a rival of the English, who were ousted from what is now New York City in the middle Atlantic states of the United States in 1664. And then in 1672, the monarch puts a fine point on this by organizing the Royal African Company to systematize the African slave trade. But this is bringing in fabulous wealth to the monarch, which attracts the dedicated attention of the rising merchant class, who, after all, uh, under Oliver Cromwell, uh, had beheaded <laughs> King Charles in the 1640s. And ultimately, they revolt against the monarch they want to elbow their way into the uh, lucrative nature of the African slave trade, one of the most lucrative businesses known to humankind. Uh, I asked a student in my class the other day, would you sell your firstborn for 1,700% profit? That is to say, invest $1 and get $1,700 back? And he thought for a long time and, and <laughs> reluctantly said no. <laughs> but, uh, of course, uh, people uh, had less morality, perhaps, in the 1600s, and they eagerly said yes. And so uh, under the guise of republicanism and under the guise of anti-monarchy sentiments, the merchant class uh, elbowed aside the monarch in terms of control of the lucrative African slave trade. You had deregulation, uh, a buzzword I'm sure you're familiar with, <laughs> of that particular uh, commerce. And free trade in Africans, free trade, I'm sure that's a concept you're familiar with, and all under the guise of republicanism. And, and of course, that, that there was a certain legitimacy to that in, in the sense that uh, it, it set the monarch on a glide path to today's Queen Elizabeth, who, are quite, of course, is quite wealthy, although her political power is not the kind of political power that monarchs once had in pre-1688. Uh, London, when the so-called Glorious Revolution unfolded, 
And just to step back for a second, because uh, I know our, our time is expiring. But, you know, before that, I just can't imagine that these solicitations for people to defeat the monarchy, you know, no, you too, you too can be a slave trader. Defeat the monarchy, get a boat, get some guns, you know, it's all yours, you know, it's all yours for the taking. Anyway, go ahead. What I was about to say is that uh, we see from actually pre-1492 up until 1865 in the United States, up until 1886 in Cuba, 1888 in uh, Brazil, you see these fortunes being built upon the backs of enslaved Africans. And then when there are attempts to move towards abolition, such as happened in London in 1772 with Somerset's case, that leads to a pro-slavery of revolt, in my estimation, in 1776, leading to the formation of the United States of America. It leads in 1836 to a pro-slavery revolt in Texas, which had seceded from Mexico because Mexico had moved to abolition in the 1820s, and then to another pro-slavery revolt in, in Dixie in the South, like South Carolina, for example, Virginia, in 1861, finally defeated. But we all know that post-1865 uh, that the property that had enriched so many, at least in this country, it was taken without compensation, which many in Dixie thought was a violation of the U.S. Constitution. And uh, oftentimes with my class, with my students, I'll snatch their smartphones, which they're always fiddling with, and say, you know, I'm, I'm taking your property without compensation. You're not very happy about that. As a matter of fact, you might want to take me outside and thrash me. Well, this is what happens in the United States. And so one of the reasons we have such torturous racism in this country it's because these basic fundamental facts have somehow been obscured in favor of this uplifting narrative about freedom and liberty and democracy. And then when slavery is abolished, everybody is celebrating, uh, except in the South, when, in fact, of course, as you know, a lot of the slave trading was actually uh, taking place in Rhode Island and New York City. And so fortunes were being built there on the backs of Africans as well. And so I hope that this commemoration of 1619 will bring some of these otherwise obscured facts to the surface so that we can better understand, for example, what's happening with the governor and attorney general of Virginia, what's happening with regard to why there's a need for Black Lives Matter, why black people are still being racially profiled and being treated like criminals even when they go to Starbucks to get a coffee. Or why we feel solidarity with the Palestinian people and other people of color around the world. I mean, why we fought for uh, to end apartheid in South Africa and, you know, why we stand in solidarity with Venezuela, Afro-Venezuelans. I mean, the whole racial dynamics of that piece aren't even really being illuminated by the mainstream media. I mean, no Afro-Venezuelan is going to go back to the days of, Ill, you know, illiteracy, poverty, having no rights under the law. So I want to take a a little break and, and just remind people again that all this fascinating material that that Gerald Horn is bringing us today is included in his two books that um, well you know much of it is included in the two books the apocalypse of settler colonialism the roots of slavery white supremacy and capitalism in 17th century North America and the Caribbean and also confronting black Jacobins the U.S. the Haitian Revolution and the origins of the Dominican Republic 
So before we run out of time, I just want to at least cover some of the material in the Confronting Black Jacobins because people might not realize the connection between Haiti and this whole narrative about slavery because just like uh, the apocalypse of settler colonialism is dealing so much with the beginnings of slavery, Confronting Black Jacobins covers the ending era of at least American slavery anyway. So why don't we bring that in and just talk about how Haiti was intertwined in this story? Well, the Haitian Revolution, 1791 to 1804, is of rural historic significance. As I tell the story, it helps to ignite a general crisis of the entire slave system in the Americas that could only be resolved with its collapse. What I mean is that with the Haitian Revolution triumphing in 1804, Like revolutionaries anywhere and everywhere, the Haitians wanted to spread their revolutionary gospel, not least to neighboring Jamaica, where the British, as you might recall, had been ruling since 1655. And the British were facing a very difficult choice. That is to say, whether to continue this process of enslavement that was delivering these fabulous profits, or run the risk of losing the property and one's lives as the slaveholders in what is now Haiti uh, did. That's what happened to them. And so by 1807, Britain had moved to abolish its role in the African slave trade, that is to say, uh, going into Africa and then snatching people and dragging them, kicking and screaming back to work on these plantations. And of course, oftentimes, as happened in Haiti, becoming uh, anti-slavery militant soldiers, abolitionists, who were bent on destroying slavery, and perhaps the slaveholders too, ditto for Barbados, Antigua, the other so-called possessions of the British Empire, and then moving circa 1833-1834 to abolish slavery itself, and then putting pressure on its former possession, the United States of America, to do the same thing. The United States moved in 1808, following Britain to formally abolish its role in the African slave trade, although, although we know that there are Africans being brought into North America by U.S. slave traders as late as 1860, 1861, for example. And then the Royal Navy, the British Navy, sets up a, a kind of maritime picket line along the West African coast to try to prevent the U.S. slave traders, who were still interested in grabbing Africans, from doing so. And so it's the Haitian Revolution that upsets the apple cart for slavery, uh, which is one of the re- reasons why Haiti has been tormented uh, <laughs> ever since. They've destroyed a cash cow for so many defined as white. That is to say that Haiti, as you know, had to pay reparations to the enslavers in the 1820s, which helped to deform the economy and society. Interestingly enough, during the U.S. Civil War, when it was apparent that Spanish Cuba Uh, might be interested in aligning with Dixie, the so-called Confederate States of America, because Spanish Cuba was then a a, a slave uh, colony. And even there were those in London uh, who thought that that maybe the Confederacy should succeed because it would help to split in two a rising rival, that is to say the United States of America, then uh, another state, the so-called Confederate States of America. And so it was really a Haiti, which was the most reliable ally, of the Lincoln government in this region and in this hemisphere because, of course, Brazil, too, was enmeshed in slavery at that particular moment. 
So we all owe an, an enormous debt of gratitude uh, to the Haitians that perhaps never can be repaid. And uh, that's one of the reasons I decided to do the research to uh, write this book, to try to indicate uh, to audiences far and wide how much we all owe to, to Haitians. And I mean all, because it's no accident that after slavery is abolished, that you have the rise of a trade union movement, you have the rise of a movement for an eight-hour day here in the United States of America. That is to say, anybody who works for a living and therefore does not have to compete against slave labor, dragging your wage level down, driving your working conditions down, owes an enormous debt of gratitude to the Haitian Revolution and the Haitian people to this very day. Yeah, and actually, speaking of the Haitian people to this very day, there are actually like thousands of people in the street to demand change, you know, and that's not really in the news right now, but there's a major uh, grassroots uh, movement there right now to fight against the neoliberal reforms and the, you know, the ways that the United States and the, these Western countries, European countries have continued to have their foot on their neck you know, for decades, if not these centuries. So that's something that we should keep watch on and try to find out about outside the mainstream media. And, and you know, just because, you know, Venezuela is in the news and um, it is so much a part of um, of what's happening in terms of the war machine, the U.S. Uh, trying to stretch its, you know, imperialist tentacles and threatening this sovereign country. Can you connect Haiti as we wind up to what Simon Bolivar did and who he was and and what and so and that's why it's called the Bolivarian Revolution and it's named for him. Can you just give us a little taste of that before we go? Well, as is well known, as suggested by myself a few moments ago, the Haitian revolution, revolutionaries wanted to spread their gospel far and wide, and that included to the northern coast of South America, what we refer to as Venezuela. And the uh, anti-colonial war led by Simon Bolivar was supported uh, by the Haitians, not least on the premise that this would lead to the abolition of enslavement. Because as I tell the story, the Haitian Revolution in some ways is a repudiation of 1776, which I characterize as a pro-slavery revolt against abolition. And in fact, what happens is that the French go into debt to support George Washington and company, which then leads to a crisis in Paris, leading to the French Revolution, then leading to the Haitian Revolution, then leading to the Haitian Revolutionaries supporting South American revolutionaries like Simon Bolivar. And to fast forward to the 21st century, the, the kind of torment that was visited upon Haiti in the 19th century by slave owners, that is to say being forced to pay reparations to French slave owners, with that capital oftentimes going to their new homes in New Orleans and Savannah, which is one of the reasons why pre-1861 New Orleans was one of the richest cities in this country because of reparations going into the pockets of former slave owners who had fled Hispaniola. Now the imperialists in the 21st century want to impose and visit torment upon the socialist experiment in Venezuela, just like they tried to impose fascism in Chile, uh, with the coup against the socialist government of Salvador Allende, September 11th, 1973. So uh, we, we see these cycles, and somehow I think we have to intervene forcefully to prevent history from repeating itself. That is to say, to save Venezuela from the plight of Chile and also from the plight of Haiti, 
which was devastated in the 19th century, a devastation from which it is yet to totally recover. Wow, okay. So only here on Pacifica Radio, only here do you get this span of history from 1619 here to 2019, as told by Professor Gerald Horn. We're so grateful for him giving us his time and his energy and his knowledge and expertise on almost a weekly basis. And I know you appreciate that too. I want to thank you, Gerald, for joining me today. Professor Gerald Horn, the author of more than three dozen books and our geopolitical analyst. Thank you, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. And that will do it for today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. We're on Facebook, Twitter, under the title On the Ground Show, and we are on iTunes and Google Play under the title WPFW On the Ground. And you can subscribe to On the Ground on Patreon. The music we played this hour included Terrorist by Low Key, Rain Dance by Nana Vasconcelos and the Bush Dancers, Spamboo Limbo by EST, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam, and I'll be at Georgia Avenue Day on Saturday, August 17th. Until next time, keep remembering your voice and keep raising your voice. Peace.